All right, welcome everyone to this thesis theater. Uh, I'm uh, Cameron Moore. I'm professor of English at Spring Arbor University. Um, and I had the pleasure of directing David Hepting's thesis on uh, Chesterton. Um, and so uh, David's with us here. Uh, David, do you wanna, do you wanna um, introduce yourself to the audience and explain kind of who you are and where you're from? Just a brief biographical sketch. Sure. Hey everyone, welcome here. Uh, yeah, David Hefting, and I'm from Saskatchewan, Canada, um, but I've been living in Malaysia for the last two years, teaching English, and um, yeah, it's my, my best friend, Rob Goslin, uh, told me about Signum University, and uh, about three years ago, I started that journey, and it's been a fantastic um, online education platform, and I've learned so much and just been um, getting into Chesterton a lot. And so I did my thesis on him, um, but here I am today. Great, excellent. Um, uh, and um, yeah, I think um, in the audience, I believe that we can take questions as you have them. It will get to a point probably later on after David's talked for a while, where if you have questions you wanna ask, um, we, can, we can field those. And as those of you who've participated in one of these before, surely no. Um, this is my first one, I confess. So uh, I'm kind of learning the ropes here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're the neophytes in the room. But um, right, this is imagined more as a conversation. This is not a, a defense in the, in the standard sense of the term rather, but a theater as we've termed it. And so um, more of a conversation between both David and I, but also all of you in the audience. So, um, you know, as as you have questions um, or or comments or want to ask something, please do um, do that. Um, I think I think through the questions box or the um, I think is probably the way to do it. And if there's another way that we're missing, you all can just alert us. <laughs> so um, let's start, David, by maybe having you kind of maybe a two a two pronged initial question, and then we can develop from there. Um, but maybe could you just summarize for everyone, just briefly, kind of what your overall claim is in the thesis, kind of just in broad strokes, your argument, and then we'll talk about how you came to that argument. But maybe just summarize for everybody what you ended up kind of arguing in the thesis. Sure. So yeah, my thesis changed a lot over time, but I eventually ended up on um, that G.K. Chesterton had very clear sight um, he was able to kind of see and understand things um, with clarity, and that came from his humility, from his humor, um, and from a willingness to um, kind of see all things as new and just exalt in you know the same thing again and again. He wasn't trying to be original, um, but he yeah he was he was willing to. Um, exalt in the, the boring, the small things, the local, and because of that, he saw more clearly than... Yes. Um, summarized thesis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can get into the particulars of that, I think, probably as we go. Um, and I think a lot of us, I think, will be interested to have you clarify a little bit when you saw what clearly, I think, is the maybe the crux of where your thesis is going to turn. What what is it that he's seen? Um, but on our way there, maybe, um, can you can you describe a little bit what drew you to Chesterton and this subject in the first place? For sure. Um, so about maybe eight years ago, my friend Tim um, shared with me a little bit about Chesterton. And the more I read, um, the more amazed I was. He just would speak so concisely, but with so much wisdom. Um, and eventually I read his book, Orthodoxy, and there's this one quote I just need to share in full because it it was kind of life changing for me. And it, I've been thinking about it for years and years since then. And it's what inspired this whole thesis. Um, so in his book, Orthodoxy, he's talking about um, kind of childlikeness. And he says, grown up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike, 
It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And so I remember reading that and just thinking, that is such a crazy way of thinking, a way of viewing God, a way of just viewing life in general. And the more I thought about it, there's just so much wisdom in that. So many of the problems in our world come from a failure to exalt in monotony. If we, you know, steal something, it's because we're not content or enjoying kind of the monotony of our own things. Um, adultery, like murder, so many of the things all come out of this one main human problem. And so it really opened my eyes to see more clearly kind of the world and the way that we should live um, and what's important. So that kind of was the ball that got everything rolling and got me so excited about this journey. Yeah, that's great. And that's a fantastic quote. That is just, that section of orthodoxy is just bears reading over and over and over again. Um, and for those of you in the audience who may not have read a lot of Chesterton, I imagine that most of you are at least familiar, but but he is just, he has piles upon piles of quotes like that that just stick with you. He's, he's one of the most quotable authors I know of. Um, and and that phrase is, that, that section that David read is fantastic, and there's about a thousand more just like it with the same kind of power uh, and clarity, yeah. Um, okay, so that's kind of, that's your, that's your origin point, right? That's where you kind of started with that sense of kind of uh, maybe God's vision of the world and vision of monotony um, and maybe ways in which our, you know, we have sinned and grown old and our father's younger than we are. Um, how did you get from there to kind of your particular study of Chesterton's historical works? Yeah, so that was another journey. Um, so I think, um, yeah, originally my whole thesis was going to be on that, the exalting in monotony, the joy of repetition. And the more I read um, Chesterton's biographies, um, his autobiography, and I just saw it's so much more expansive than just that. And so the way that he applied kind of that vision to all his works, I noticed um, he just, one of the urges he keeps coming back to is to help us see things fresh um, because we get so tired and stale. He has this um, essay called Chasing After One's Hat, where he talks about how, you know, kids, if they're waiting in a train station, he's like, no, no kid ever complained about waiting in a train station. You know, they'll imagine the, the arm that comes down for the train as like some king's like flag for a, a jousting match or like the, the great green lights of some dragon in the dungeons. And it's like through imagination, um, we frame all of our circumstances through kind of creativity. We understand the world and um, difficult things. And so I started seeing that the the secret wasn't so much just in the repetition and exalting in monotony, but how how he viewed uh, history, fantasy, mystery, um, his literary works, he would um, interpret all sorts of books. He kind of had this, this way of doing it um, that really kind of peeled through the layers. And he was able to analyze um, a work uh, incredibly, almost quickly, you know, in comparison, he could, for example, study Thomas Aquinas um, and just read through many books and then um, and, and wrote this short book on him. And as you, you told me that, I think Etienne Gilson said, you know, I've studied for 20 years and he's able to <laughs> summarize and capture the heart of Aquinas, you know, so well and so thoroughly. And so, um, I became more interested in his approach to seeing everything, how he could interpret things and get to the heart of them so well. And so history, I've always been interested in history. I love his works on John Chaucer, on the history of England. And so I decided, you know, I, I, this, this is only a 45, 50 page thesis. I can't talk about everything. So I'll, I'll narrow it in on history, but um, I thought it would be a good avenue to see how he understands historical events as well. Yeah, which when you when you proposed that, I thought that was a great kind of frame because um, you're right. His his focus on vision is ubiquitous; it's everywhere. And but making the uh, yeah making the frame the, his historical works particularly. Um, so maybe that's a good place for you to talk just a little bit about Chesterton kind of 
as a historian, I mean, you've focused on a number of different kinds of history in that you've got biography in there, an actual history in a short history of England, you've got his kind of poetry um, in the Ballad of the White Horse. Um, could you talk maybe just about Chesterton's general approach to history in light of your kind of focus on repetition and seeing seeing things clearly? Yeah, so um, as, as many people, um, historians, if they look at his work, one thing they'll notice and one thing I was surprised by with Chesterton is he's not a stickler for details. Um, he's um, he cares more about kind of the broader themes and the, the currents of history rather than some of the you know specifics. And so I enjoyed that as someone who also maybe is more big picture and doesn't sometimes um, forgets some of the specifics. But he also was incredible. He could you know, memorize whole passages or, or all sorts of things at once. Um, so yeah, I would say that um, the, yeah, the interesting things in, in history, he was able to kind of see um, some of the paradoxes of history. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that kind of sets him apart from just most regular historians. Um, he was someone who saw um, where, where like conflicting tension was, where conflicting forces came and where, where each side is kind of coming from and then what's, what's the truth. Um, as he famously said in orthodoxy, again, I, if I see two things in contradiction, I will I'll take both of them. Uh, you know, or the two true things that seem to be contradicting. I'll take the two truths and the contradiction along with them that we see from two eyes, and because of that, we have better perspective. Each each eye sees differently. Um, so, for example, yeah, in the history of England, he he focuses on the kings, but he also focuses on the poor and how England got rid of slavery without even you know a major war there's no civil war over slavery it was just the more local the more rooted people were they eventually you know he says those who acquire roots acquire rights and so he was able to kind of see the surprising paradox of freedom that came from being kind of confined to a place so those those type of things just um energized me and they were so interesting and i think really original um in terms of his way of viewing history yeah, he, he yeah, I think I think he's exactly right. And he's got um his ability to imagine what any kind of historical moment was like for the common people living through it, I think is is one of his real kind of his imaginative his own imagination allowed him to imagine what life might have been like for whatever particular group of people he's studying at whatever particular time. Um, and I think that's that kind of imaginative sympathy is one of his great powers as a historian um, that lets him see kind of an, a, a different side than histories often present. He calls it history from the inside in the short what life actually felt like in the mind of an average man or an average woman. Um, and that kind of history from the inside is something you often don't get in most historical studies. Um, kind of circling back for a second here, we've got a question question popped up here um, from Timothy, which is a good question. And and I, I had thought that we might arrive here at the end, but we can we can detour our way through here now because um, it's it's a good one. I don't I don't know if you see this question, David, but it's about I, I can't see it right now. Um, it's yeah i can read it to you if you like it's just drop down the question box you'll see but anyway um it's this um it's kind of about your statement that that kind of through imagination and creativity we frame our circumstances um so then timothy applies that to kind of our current pandemic and says um how do you feel chesterton can help reframe the pandemic circumstances especially for those who've lost much because of the disease or lost work or lost opportunities? Okay, that's a great question, Tim. Um, yeah, I think like first and foremost, he would he would have compassion on the people. Uh, he would, he had a great heart, he was so caring. Um, and, and also he would make people laugh. I think first and foremost, he would he would think of something funny, a way to people help, help them 
you know, uh, take the situation differently. Um, so, for example, his hometown was flooded when he was gone. And then he said, you know, I just imagine, oh, my home, hometown's like Venice. Like, you know, I don't need to pay to go on a vacation to Venice. It's flooded. So that there's always a way to look at tragedy and see the, the humor, to see the beauty, the adventure in it. So, yeah, in modern times with this, this virus, um, this is a very good question. I, th I think you probably somehow compare it to fairy tales, to uh, a dragon. Maybe the only way we can defeat this dragon is by staying at home. He's like, how wonderful that, you know, all these knights had to risk life and live, but we can, you know, destroy this dragon by uh, <laughs> reading and spending time with our loved ones through, through happiness. Uh, to me, that's maybe one way that he might reframe it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great reframing. I like that a lot. I think, uh, yeah, I think um, that you, you make a good point that he was always very concerned um, for the suffering and the poor. I mean, we think of him as this great writer of jovial feasting, um, which he is. But that's paired um, with a, a real concern for those who are suffering. I'm, it, the, uh, the Chesterton Library in Oxford is trying to kind of collect all the things he ever wrote, in, which is a real task. Um, and I, I was struck by the number of books there that are collections of essays or funny stories or comics for hospital subscription. Like you get a lot of famous people to write little bits that then you sell and all the proceeds go to charity, right, to hospitals. And there's just a number of those that Chesterton has pieces in there, just as one example of the way in which, and there were lots, you would give money away all the time walking down the street, but um, and in kind of his professional career kind of standing in solidarity um, with those who are suffering. So, I mean, there's that half of the pandemic and your question about well, for people who have suffered real losses. Um, I think that, that he'd be right there. Um, but also then for the imaginative half for reframing, you know, all of our, I'm in Michigan right now and we're currently under lockdown and have been for a while. I don't know where all the rest of you across the globe are and what your conditions are, um, but probably, not too dissimilar. Anyway, um, he's got all kinds, I mean, yeah, I think your point about staying at home, for Chesterton, home's the great term. And so to be forced to be home is just a, <laughs> a great good in his mind, I'm sure. He's got this great passage in his novel, Man Alive, where they talk about this very thing. What if we were stuck here? And they think maybe their home is gonna de declare itself an independent country. Um, and some of the characters scoff at this and the main character says, no, 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 you misunderstand. This is you. Everything that we need is here. If we were really besieged in this garden, we would have all kinds of great talks that we'd never have otherwise. We'd read all kinds of books we'd never read otherwise. We'd actually have to deal with each other and really encounter another human, which is rather a frightful and terrible thing to have to do, than just be able to pass off easily to all of other places. Um, so I think, yeah, I think you're right that kind of reframing that being at home not as boring or dull or limiting, but as uh, a great adventure um, that just, just relies on kind of the joy of limits. Yeah, go ahead. And just to add to that, like, I think one, one of the favorite book ideas, I don't think he ever did, but he said he, he imagined um, writing some story about this guy who leaves his home, you know, gets lost at sea, he's traveling, then he comes to this, like, new land or whatever, and he, he comes to this house and he's just amazed and he's like looking at everything and just seeing it with new eyes. And then he realizes it's his own house that uh, he had been lost. And he's like, that's what I want to kind of recapture. That we see our own houses as new, our own families as new and just so exciting and kind of recapture that glory. So absolutely what you're saying, Cameron, that it's, I, I love I love his, his love for home and, um, even just, you know, reading about his marriage, about just the community, they would always invite the kids over and set up little toy theaters and, uh, you know, tell all these stories. Um, just some of the warmest um, people and they, they lived what they believed about home. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true, um, especially because they were, they were unable to have children um, and, and they tried a number of different medical options and, to no avail. And so their solution was just to invite all the other children, everyone else's children to their home and make it a second home. And there are stories upon stories from all sorts of children kind of recounting having their second home there with the Chestertons. Um, 
yeah, and they're they're great stories. Chesterton and children. Children are Chesterton's favorite anyway. So uh, he was he was quite content to make paper dragons and put on puppet shows in the toy theater, um, and only bothered about having to write his journal articles when they were absolutely due and the train was leaving. Uh, so um, yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, Tim. And as as others of you have questions too, just just drop them in the question box, just like that, I think, and we can kind of we can deal with them as we go. I mean, that's the great glory of Chesterton is that he's just so broad but consistent that you know you can move. It doesn't take but one half step to get from ballads about English kings in the ninth century to answers to what do we do now that we're all locked down at home. Right, those are those are those are right next door to each other for Chesterton. So, um, yeah, do do keep those questions rolling in. Um, we'll have fun answering. Um, okay. Um, so, could maybe David, what as as you went on this, uh, as you kind of wrote this thesis and did the research process, I suppose too. Um, how did you Chesterton so big? How did you kind of approach the both in his literary work and in his physical person? Um, how did you uh, how did you kind of frame your research or kind of approach and figure out what you were going to read in the vast kind of sea of Chesterton? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first got into Chesterton, I was just shocked at how voluminous he is. Like, there would be each, each set, there's, I don't know how many sets, uh, Ignatius Press or whatever, and like, just these huge thousand-page books, and there's like over 20 of them. Um, I was collected writings, and so um, there's a lot out there. Um, and I think, um, I, I mean, I started with what I was familiar with, and then talking with you, you get some great suggestions of what kind of things would fit, it would be interesting. And then um, the things I wanted to learn more about. So um, like with uh, Aquinas, I, I didn't know too much about the kind of theology that was influencing Chesterton um, with, I, I'd already, you know, kind of fallen in love with Chaucer and so I wanted to get back into that. Um, and I think, yeah, the. I guess because there's so much, I could kind of choose the areas that coincided with my interests. I really like history. Um, I've been an English teacher, but I've also been a history teacher in high school. And so I kind of love digging into those aspects. And so, um, and yeah, and again, it was so fresh, um, his, his views of history. So um, that guided my research. And um, then, so I wanted to yeah, kind of take his um, kind of philosophy, so things like orthodoxy and um, Aquinas, what, what shapes his thinking. And so then I needed to look at his autobiographies to see what, what influences shaped him as he emerged as a writer. Um, and so as, as I read, I think that also clarified, but I just would highlight everything that kind of seemed even in the kind of the ballpark of this idea of exalting in monotony, of um, later on of clear vision. And as I kind of collected all these quotes, that's that's what reframed my thesis. I realized, oh, this this is bigger than um, just kind of the smaller area I wanted to look at. There's this really interesting idea of the way Chesterton sees things. Yeah, so maybe maybe you could kind of narrate for everybody that turn where <laughs> you kind of took a, a not a 180, but a 90 degree turn maybe from what you thought you were gonna be doing to what you actually ended up writing. Um, can you can you narrate maybe just a little bit of that process um, and, and what led you to that turn? And then um, the experience of making that and then you know, thinking for a long time as, as you thought when we were working through it, you're going in one way and then you kind of shifted seriously um, after you've done a lot of work. So kind of maybe talk about that process in terms of, both in terms of what you actually said, but also just in the process of creating an argument and kind of what you learned through that. Right. Um, so, yeah, as I was starting and going through, um, I kept realizing I had to always take the, like, this, this idea of Chesterton exalting in monotony led to so many other ideas. It's kind of like a springboard. But I realized I had to keep kind of explaining the intermediary step each, each part of the way. And that um, if and often the intermediary step was well he saw this because of um, his exaltation of monotony but his sight like what he's looking at and how he was looking at things 
is what to me is, is so interesting and what's so important. And so I realize I can, you know, write twice as much if I don't always have to explain that intermediary step. I can just focus from there and then um, all those strands make kind of an easier, more simple and focused essay. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was, and then as I kind of was looking at the five main books I had chosen to write about, um, I realized each one kind of crystallized one aspect of his view and the way that he, he looked at the world. And, and that, all, that made things easier too, because then I could um, just focus on one aspect and kind of explicate it and see how he used that throughout the book um, and, and go back through that. So I, I mentioned in the abstract, but like how Chaucer was a lot of his humor. Um, Chaucer took things very seriously, but he was also very lighthearted and funny. And it's similar to Chesterton, who you know would joke about anything, but he was he was deadly serious about kind of the importance of what he believed. And some of his best friends were um, these people who absolutely disagreed with him, who debated him, George Bernard Shaw, um, and um, and yet he he was able to move past kind of differences of belief just to love people and he, and he saw kind of their hearts he saw where they're coming from and was able to build these deep friendships um despite being you know completely ideologically opposed to many of these things yeah he's a great model yeah. for kind of charitable disagreement um um a vehement disagreement but with with charity and good spirit um yeah, he's, he's, we can learn a lot from him, I think, in our contemporary world in that regard. Could you, um, could you maybe lay out then, just quickly for the, for the audience, the five kind of books you looked at and then kind of the central insight that you found with each of those five works? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the, the main books I looked at was, um, he did a biography on St. Thomas Aquinas and so the big insight was how basically Thomas viewed reality. A lot of these philosophers, you know, Plato in the cave viewed reality as maybe just shadows on the wall of a cave and we're not really as real. But Thomas argued the opposite. He's like, no, reality is even more real than we realize. And so, and then he used far bigger terms and things that I can even understand. But Chesterton really kind of, you know, broke it down and, and simplified and Hold it in an entertaining and beautiful way. Um, so I kind of identified a paradox for each of these authors that I thought encapsulated the way Chesterton saw. So that Thomas was a slow man. He was nicknamed the mule. He, he kind of moved slowly, uh, not slowly but methodically. Um, but he ended up going further and seeing farther than the facts. Um, and then um, the next book was St. Francis of Assisi. He wrote this short but beautiful biography of St. Francis. And I found that, you know, Francis is one of the most free men um, who ever lived. And yet he was so bound um, by his, his vows, his vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And yet he set so many men free from the feudal system, from all the obligations of those, that lifestyle. And so my main paradox is that Francis bound himself to poverty, chastity, and obedience, and by those bonds became free. And so uh, Chesterton kind of explores freedom. He says that like the followers of Francis were like little fishes. They didn't have, uh, they could you know get through the, the gates of any kind of jail or anything. They could, it was very hard to catch on to them because they had no attachments. It's like, oh, you could beat them and they will, they'll rejoice for suffering. You could steal everything and then they'll, you know, give thanks. Um, he's like, it's very hard to come against them. They'll just sing and uh, make friends with you. Um, so um, there's just so much freedom to Francis. Um, and then the short history of England, um, I read and it's, yeah, like Cameron mentioned, it's the, the history of England, but often focusing on the common man. Um, so he, he mentions the kings, but almost often in relation to the common person. And so, um, I wrote that it shows how it takes an uncommon man to stand up for common men. Um, and that uh, Chesterton kind of, yeah, really focuses on freedom and dignity and how those forces um, shaped English history and slowly um, that the, the people weren't slaves but their souls, that there were, um, yeah, he just saw how those forces interacted in English history. And it was, it was quite enlightening. Um, 
And then finally, I read The Ballad of the White Horse uh, about King Alfred of England. And, um, and that shows the old paradox of Christ, the meek will inherit the earth. Um, Alfred was a very sick guy. He wasn't, you know, physically very, maybe intimidating. Um, and yet he was, he had this dream of uniting England and he fought off the Vikings and he, he did incredible things. One of the greatest kings in English history. And so I saw that in Alfred, he kind of embodied all the ideals of Chesterton. He had this great humor. He was so humble. Like this lady told him to like watch the fire. Um, and he's like the king of England, but he's like, oh, okay, I'll watch you. Like, um, and he just takes all these stories and kind of shows the local, the humble, the, um, the freedom of Alfred and the way that he cared for the poor and he cared for the, um, the dignity of all men. And so he kind of encapsulated seeing the world the way that Chesterton wanted to see it. And so that's one the reasons why it's his greatest ballad and just an incredible work that lives on this day. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a wonderful poem. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just got these great resonant lines that stick with you. So, um, you 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 write in your thesis that kind of art in in some ways Alfred is the culmination of your thesis. He's kind of he kind of encapsulates all the different strands that you've been kind of tying together, and it's the last chapter in your thesis. Um, could you talk just for a second, maybe about about why that is and how he kind of sums up as best as anybody can in your thesis, kind of the cent the figure that embodies what you're after? For sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, and Chesterton, as an Englishman, really looked up to Alfred. And as I as I read the Ballad of the White Horse too, I could just see these characteristics. Um, the, the, and Chesterton, again, he's not writing like a strictly historical account. He just he's like he hears some popular stories and he's like, oh, that's good enough to be true. Um, so, but he's writing kind of like a spiritual or a mythical account of Alfred, and so he'll he'll take sources that you know kind of seem true, um, and yet. Um, so yeah, there's there's a couple stories of like Alfred's humility, and one of the big themes too is that these guys don't know that they're going to win. You know, they're facing a bigger, stronger, meaner enemy, um, and the, Alfred has a vision of the mother Mary, and she says, you know, essentially, um, like, go, you know, you ha you have to go forward even if you don't know you're going to win. Like, um, even if you're not sure. Um, that uh, you, you know you have victory on your side. It's it's more important about choosing the right side than choosing the victorious side. And I thought that's so interesting. We often just celebrate the winners, but um, Chesterton's one of his main points is that it's not about winning as, as being on the good side, being on the right side. Um, and he talks about uh, this this one quote: the, "The men signed of the cross of Christ go gaily in the dark, go singing to their shame." You and all the kind of Christ are ignorant and brave, and you have words you hardly win and souls you hardly save. And I just, I love that. It's so humble. And it's like, you know, you're, you're not very good Christians. You're not very good warriors. Maybe you're not even really good at singing. Um, but still, you sing, you go bravely through the dark. You're, you're these warriors who, who just, just trust that what you're doing is right. And so you're going to keep doing it, even if you don't win, even if, you know, everything falls apart. And to me, that just shows kind of the beauty of hope, the beauty of seeing the world as just do what's right, whether or not it's successful, whether or not you're rewarded, um, just do what's right. And I think that's that's a lot about what Chesterton was. He was he was humble. He would argue his point, even if people didn't agree with him, even if he didn't, you know, build a movement around it. He said, "I think this is right, so I'm just gonna stand up for it." And Alfred everybody yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, he does. And I think, I think he's a great figure to end with and kind of encapsulates all of what you were arguing. Um, partly because, especially at the end of that poem, the poem doesn't end with Alfred defeating the Danes. It ends with Alfred giving his laws under a tree, but then having a vision of England to come where the white horse um, has white chalk outline horse on a hill in England. Um, that has been overgrown and the symbol of Alfred's victory, you know, they tend the horse and it, um, um, but Alfred has a vision that the future people, his own descendants won't tend the, won't tend the horse and won't pick the weeds and it will get overgrown again. 
right? So the, the real enemy in the poem in the end is not necessarily the pagan Danes, but us, ourselves in our own uh, succumbing to kind of the boredom and monotony of familiar things that once were wonderful and that people sacrificed their whole lives for, but that for us have become kind of the humdrum of life and that we don't pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, um, yeah, I should have mentioned that, but uh, yeah, the, the heart of it is that we always need to keep our, our vision clear. Um, and Chesterton keeps saying, you know, it's so easy to get, fall, fall into rhythms, to, to lose the wonder of life. And um, you just daily need to clear your vision to see the wonder and to see the beauty, um, the glory. Um, he wrote this poem, The Mortal Answers, that's one of my favorite poems. And he's responding to Keats, who says, you know, the world is more full of weeping than you can understand. And Chesterton ends his poem by saying, the world is more full of glory than we can understand. Um, so yeah, just keep that horse fight, keep removing the weeds of pride, removing the weeds of disappointment and bitterness. And then we can see clearly, we can see with love and, and hope to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, what are parts, um, things you couldn't, things you couldn't include in the final version? Like what interesting things, um, detours you wish you could have taken uh, that, that had to get cut from the final or could that you couldn't, you know, rabbit trails you couldn't pursue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, well, I mean, yeah, he wrote so many interesting things. Um, I think one of them is just his mystery works. I think that, um, he, I mean, he was so influential in the genre of mystery fiction, I had no idea. Um, he was part of this early group of detective writers like Dorothy Sayers, and I think Agatha Christie was heavily influenced by them. And mm -hmm. their, their number one mantra is you have, the answer has to be clear um, in, in the detective work, um, kind of from the beginning or from very early on. So that if someone's paying really close attention, they'll be able to notice it. And often it's hidden in the mundane, it's hidden in the boring. And to me, that, that is so interesting and that encapsulates his idea of this clear sight that we, there's so many things we don't see because they're boring or they're mundane. And like he, he tells uh, one, one great mystery of um, where the, the murderer or the bad guy is the postman because um, everybody kept saying, no, nobody came into the house. No, there's no way anyone um, could be here, but it turns out, uh, like it was the postman because we just ignore the servants, we ignore the, the people doing small duties. Nobody important came into the house, maybe. Um, and, I, and I just love that. It's like everybody's important, you know, we shouldn't overlook anybody or anything. Um, so that was a big one. His mystery works. Um, and um, I would have loved to dig more into his um, biographies. There's so many funny, hilarious, interesting details. Um, his romance with his wife. I, I remember reading, uh, he was giving someone a tour of the house and then he said on the staircase, the light just shone in and he said, um, sometimes the light shines on my wife and she looks like an angel. And I remember, you know, what she really is. And he's like, this is my, my favorite part of the house. And just like little <laughs> moments like that are so, so beautiful and heartwarming. Um, and yeah, I wish I could have included so many of those things as well. I know that's that's the trouble with trying to write on Chesterton is you go to do your research and then you start reading and then you keep reading and then you find other things to read and then you just and or you sit down to write for the day and you're like well I got to refresh my mind on what that quote was and then 20 pages later you realize you haven't written anything but uh yeah Absolutely. um yeah your point about the detective stories made me think that he writes his um in the defendant he has an article in defense of detective stories where he argues that it's only in detective stories that the real poetry of the modern city has begun to be appreciated and celebrated uh that, that detective stories are doing for the city as an imaginative place um what other genres of literature in the previous human history had done for other parts of human experience whether that's like the battlefield with the Iliad or the journey with the Odyssey, um, that it's detective stories which begin to properly recognize the poetry of the modern city, uh, which I thought is a great, a great line. Um, let's see. Um, uh, okay, here's here's another question. 
again from again from Tim. Um, if you could pick one of Chesterton's works to make into a film adaptation, which one would it be and why? Uh, oh. <laughs> good question, Tim. Um, yeah, there's there's so many. I I mean, I really love um, like. Even so, even his biographies of like Chaucer or Francis, I, I just are filled with such a kind of poetry and beauty, but they're not quite as narrative, and so that'd be hard. I think his Ballad of the White Horse would be an amazing short film. Um, it would be, you know, it's got action, like adventure, uh, suspense, and um, it would be, oh yeah, Man Alive would be amazing too. Yeah, there's all, all of his uh, uh, narrative works would be amazing, but I, I think I would choose Ballad of the White Horse. Yeah, that's a, that. yeah. yeah, and you could see like, you could do some great kind of epic charges, you know, you would you'd have great huge set pieces with that one. Quite, the trouble is that so many of them are so strange. His novels are weird. <laughs> Strange stuff starts happening in almost all of his novels. Really weird stuff. Um, in the best sorts of ways, but ways that are hard to capture on film, maybe. Um, I think I think that in terms of kind of the cinematic appeal, maybe the Napoleon of Notting Hill, which was his first mm. novel, um, because it imagines a London set in 1984. The future London, which is which is why Orwell set his 1984 in 1984 as a response. To, yeah, um, they're very they're very different yeah. visions, <laughs> um, right? But it's it's it's. Uh, Kings are just elected by lottery, by random draw, and they end up electing this guy who's an artist and doesn't care for anything but a joke. Um, and he he turns London into kind of medieval boroughs where all these bureaucrats and plutocrats and businessmen have to wear medieval heraldry and carry around these pikes and spears um you know and it's a joke but he's the king so everybody's got to do it until one guy takes it seriously and really wants to defend his little street um and it kind of goes from there but kind of the, the clash of the modern city with um medieval pageantry i think could make a good patriotism yeah it's there's some powerful emotions and you just i remember reading that and just crying as he was like you know standing up for his tiny little street and hill and uh yeah i think that's that'd be excellent to watch as well yeah, bit, yeah a little bit less weird than some of his other works yeah in, in some ways um he also i mean these aren't films but he has two great plays he had a couple other small plays um occasional pieces but two plays that are really well done both of them, magic and the surprise. Um, the surprise, especially, is there's all kinds of interesting things. If you want a, a very interesting play to read, I would I would recommend the surprise. It's not too long. It reads out loud really well, and you only need about. So if you're looking for if you're looking for a good play for your reading group, I, the surprise is wonderful. Um, let's see. I see more questions. If I can find them, where did they go? Oh, they were here. Um, let me see if I can come with. I think it was. Oh, here it is. If you could only keep two of Chesterton, Tolkien, or Paul, who would you keep? Who the last one? Paul. Paul. Uh, as oh, in, like as the in, Apostle Paul. As in Saint Paul? Yeah, the Apostle. Is this? Is that who? I guess that's. I guess that's who. I guess that's who we mean. Wow. Wow, that's <laughs> that'd be very uh, difficult uh, choice. <laughs> I, I I just couldn't I couldn't uh, make that choice. I think they're they're also. Yeah, I, don't think, I don't think either. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess you'd have to keep Paul. I mean, I think yeah. a more. I mean, yeah, we have to keep Paul. Maybe an interesting question would be if you could only keep Chesterton, Tolkien, and Lewis, and you had to pick two of the three, who would you keep? That's that's where the right. rubber really meets the road. Yeah, I, I would probably choose Tolkien and Chesterton. Um, I really love Lewis, grew up reading Narnia, um, but those two I think have just influenced my life just to a really deep extent, and I still just yeah love going back to them again and again. How about yeah. you? I don't know. 
That's I don't. Oh, that, yeah. ah, that's that's a that's a tough choice. Um, <laughs> I think probably. You know, Dale Alquist is famous for fondly says many times, who's president of the American Chesterton Society, right? Like, just read Chesterton, all of Lewis is in there anyway. Um, uh, and he says that largely to provoke the Lewis people, um, which is usually effective. Um, I, yeah, maybe I'd have to take Chesterton and Tolkien, although I don't know that, I don't know. A large part of my childhood would vanish if I did that, and the Chronicles of Narnia would go away. So I, I don't know, um, but but maybe maybe those two. Um, <laughs> um, here's here's a question from Rob. Um, what advice would you give to future thesis writers based on your experience? That's a good question. Ooh, excellent. Um, yeah, I would say to be open to change. Um, I think if I had really held to my original thesis, it wouldn't have been as good. And um, it, I would have just been trying to like cram, cram things into my direction rather than kind of seeing where my passions or where the kind of even the texts themselves led me. Um, and then just to really have a clear system of gathering quotes. Um, I think that helps as you interact with the text um, to kind of guide what you're writing. So from the beginning, I knew I was like, I, I can get disorganized so quickly, I can lose a lot of this stuff. So I just had a big spreadsheet and put all my quotes kind of with different themes in, my, in a spreadsheet. And that, that helped me organize my ideas a lot. I'm a bit scatterbrained. And so some kind of organization system for ideas, thoughts, and quotes. Um, I think it was a lifesaver. It really took down a lot of the time. And Cameron often mentioned just to always have a really clear thesis because then everything flows from that. And so that, that helped me too, just to be like, okay, what's, what's the main thing I'm arguing? As soon as I know that, then the evidence can you know, come and it just organizes your thoughts and what you're saying. So um, developing a clear research question, clear thesis. Great question, Rob. Um. Let's see, looking, I think, I think we rolled through, that was a good list of questions there. Um, you all feel free to keep sending them in as you like. Um, I mean, that's the great thing about Chesterton, is just, he said something about everything, right? So there's, <laughs> yeah. not that we know, not that we know even the quarter of it, right? We used to think that Chesterton had about 5,000 articles 10 years ago. Now we think it's about 7,000 articles and the number keeps climbing. So, you know, it's, 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 Unending in a good sort of way, um, David. If you had a if you had a part two of this thesis, what would it be? Right? Where would you go if you had if if this was part one and then you had part two? What would you do? Wow, um, that's a great question. I think where we continue is kind of like, okay, here's how he saw the world. Here's how he shared his view of the world. So then. Part two, it wouldn't maybe wouldn't be as academic, but I'd be interested in like how then should we live? Um, what what kind of life does this lead us to? If we if we see the world as new, if we um, kind of are, are able to kind of consider things as adventures and lead others into adventures and let our creativity kind of flow out of us, um, what what does that look like? And so I think it would look more at his biography. It would look at um, Kind of the outflow of the people he influenced and what what they've lived like and how um, maybe he's impacted society. And to me, that's that's really interesting. I often um, look at literature for the benefit and, and the enjoyment of reading it, but also how does it how does it impact things? How does our view of the world change our perspective? So I guess yeah, something like how then should we live? Or something like that. Yeah, I think I think that's great, and I think that was going to be kind of my follow up question, which would be what how is kind of this study of Chesterton's historical method and imagination relevant for us, not just as an academic topic, but also as, as we go about our lives and try to begin to see more clearly ourselves, perhaps. And we've, we've already touched on that a little bit in kind of the, the current crisis we're in and where Chesterton's method might be helpful. Um, do you have other thoughts overall um, and and this I mean this is a this is a big question right um, but how, any if you, as you were doing your research did you have any um, 
insight or aha moments into kind of how this might work out practically in our lives today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and that's, again, something that ever since I first read that one quote, I've been pondering it and seeing how it can affect my life. Um, because I think a lot of our life can kind of get lost in the day-to-day, -day, in the repetition. Um, so I think that kind of the idea about clearing the, the white horse and just allowing um, our, ourselves to see what's really important, allowing us to see the people around us as, as new, as fresh, as valuable, as um, precious. Um, he says to love anything is to realize that it can be lost. And I, I feel there's kind of a stoic wisdom in that, you know, to kind of meditate that everything around us, we might lose today, tomorrow, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And um, so that's to me something also I think about is that um, the local is important. The people around us are important. You know, Notting Hill was just this random street, but in that novel, this guy was willing to give his life for his street and uh, his little hill. And, and I think we often were so concerned about the big progress, about changing the world, that our, our little worlds are just as probably, if not more important than the big world. That as we, as we love and develop and focus and are creative and, and bring about beauty in our own small sphere of influence, that, that is what changes the world. And so I think yeah, his focus on the small and humility on bringing creativity and reframing our lives and, and just seeing all inconveniences as small adventures. Um, I know, you know, as a, as a teacher or as a husband that, um, yeah, there's, there's things that are, are boring and they're, they're repetitive, but it's like trying to be able to reframe that and see the beauty in it and, and the possibility for adventure and excitement and imagination um, is what has, has given me so much more meaning in my life. And it's, it's certainly had a profound effect. Um, even I just found the more I'd read Chesterton and, and write this thesis, like if I spent five hours afterwards, I'd just be so happy and just like a lot more open to whatever happens. I'd be like, great, you know, bring it on. Whatever's happening um, can be amazing. Uh, we just, it depends how we look at it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Mark asks here, this is a good question. Uh, what was the most surprising thing you discovered? And did his work have any unexpected impacts on other writers that most people don't know? Okay, good question. Um, yeah, I think well, one. Um, so yeah, I mean, the first I found out more early on, but just that he wasn't such a stickler for details that like he was so, so knowledgeable and could he just memorize things and knew so, so much, but you'd be like, ah, pretty much, you know, um, that, that surprised me. Um, he, also, he would habitually yeah, quote in his, in his books from memory. He would just remember the poem and write it down and publish it without bothering to check whether he quoted it right. Um, he says he says at one point that he quotes by habit, but also out of principle, because if poetry means anything, that's what it means, that it becomes a part of you. And so you ought mm. to be able to do it by memory and, and it ought to have been become deep enough in you that it's just there to be accessed. Um, that's anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt, that just that made me think of that. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I mean, it yeah. reminds me of like the oral tradition and how, you know, like Homer or like Beowulf, a lot of these oral stories have this incredible power and wording because each time it was told, they would, you know, word it better, word it better. And like a lot of the most famous quotes, you know, are actually different than what the person actually said, but they're usually better. And even Chesterton, I think there's like seven quotes from Chesterton that he never quite said, but they've <laughs> improved upon. And so, um, yeah, I'd say that's one of the things. Um, yeah, the influence. Um, there's a lot of people. I was just shocked that he influenced. Um, Gandhi was one of them. Gandhi loved Chesterton. Um, Marshall McLuhan, the, the Canadian writer with like, the medium is the message, um, huge Chesterton fan. Um, uh, Isaac Watts, you know, who, the, there's this kind of like hippie uh, spiritualist of the 60s or something. Um, he, a lot of these YouTube videos he uses him. Anyways, uh, he was just a huge Chesterton fan. Um, I already mentioned the mystery novels. Um, he, yeah, just a, a phenomenal influence in uh, mystery writing and then fantasy, you know. Um, Tolkien quotes Chesterton once or twice in his On Fairy Stories. 
And you know, he disagrees. He says that Chesterton's view of fantasy is too small. But I think a lot of Chesterton's ideas, you know, blossomed out of Tolkien and all of these other writers. So I think he had kind of some of the early innovations in fantasy. Um, and um, he, even yeah, like all these world leaders, like he visited Poland and like the whole country just welcomed him, just hugely open arms. The, uh, the ambassador, everybody gave these beautiful speeches. They had like a parade for him. And I was just shocked at what an international celebrity he was. Um, and then just as, you know, you'd read about these dinners he would go to and he's like, oh, J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, uh, just said how much he appreciated my work. So then I think he went at Winston Churchill and like, just, you know, oh, then I met this guy who's so famous, Ralph Waldo Emerson, George Bernard Shaw, all these guys. So just he was, his world was far bigger and more influential than I ever realized. Uh, there's a there's a great story of um, um, Henry James staying next to Chesterton's cottage at some seashore somewhere in southeast England, right? Um, but they both had summer cottages next to each other. And Henry James, right, who's come over and is just like more English than the English and prim and proper, right, and, and just loves that part of British manners. Um, and they're staying there. And then Hilaire Belloc, Chesterton's good friend and co-conspirator in distributism and other things, um, who was an MP in parliament at this time, comes back from like a two week walking tour in France with his buddy. And they've just been out walking, sleeping wherever, right? But, and, and they get back in the middle of the night and they're just banging on Chesterton's door, shouting for beer at like 2 a.m. Beer, Chesterton, beer, they want. Right, and Henry James is scandalized by these, you know, so this is the member of parliament and they're just, they're causing a ruckus at 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> uh, Rob then follows this up with, uh, which work of Chesterton's would you say is the most important? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. Or maybe the or is better, uh, easier perhaps. Which would you recommend to someone who's new to Chesterton and why? Excellent. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it depends what you're interested in. But I think if you want his worldview, I think Orthodoxy um, is the book. Like first, he wrote this book called Heretics. Kind of here's all these famous people. Here's why they're all wrong about so many things. And then they're like, yeah, well, what do you believe? And he's like, ah, he's like, I will write a book on the smallest provocation. And so Orthodoxy was the first book I read, and it was just profound and life changing. Um, and, and then he does, it's a defense of Christianity, but also a defense of fairy tales, a defense of um, all sorts of things um, that he's believed, uh, you know, um, his, his, especially, yeah, I would recommend his chapter, um, I think on Fairyland, where he talks about how his nurse, you know, who would tell him all these stories as a kid. He's like, and people say, those stories are ridiculous. He's like, I've, I haven't heard anything since then that makes more sense than fairy tales. And so, um, I think that's one of the best entry works um, or smaller one essay on chasing after one's hat, I think is just an excellent embodiment of his viewpoint. Um, and then in terms of novels, um, you could you could almost go anywhere. Uh, Father Brown is really um, some of the most accessible maybe, or I, I also really like Napoleon of Notting Hill. It depends on, do you want, what do you want? Do you want essays? Do you want kind of biography or do you want fiction? I guess maybe fiction, it, I would say either The Ball and the Cross or Man Alive, probably. The Ball and the Cross is a little uh, less, it, it came out serially. And so it kind of reads like a serial novel chapter by chapter, but reading that, you, you'll get a lot of what Chesterton's after. It's about a Catholic and an atheist who want to have a duel to the death to prove who's right. Um, and, and it's great fun, right? The London wants to stop them. They can't, they can't let this kind of thing go on. The police are always chasing them. So they have to run away as friends so they can find a spot in which to be enemies. Uh, it's great. It's, it's a great premise. It goes from there. Um, yeah, orthodoxy is great. Orthodoxy is dense too. Like the first two times that I tried to read orthodoxy, I did not get through chapter two. Uh, third time was the charm, but it's great. It, and it probably is the most succinct kind of statement. 
if you just want essays, I love the defendant, the defendant, where Chester says you're just going to defend all these things that people are continually kicking down the ladder as bad. So he defends, uh, uh, it's just every essay is in defense of, in defense of planets, in defense of ugliness, in defense of skeletons, in defense of baby worship, in defense of slang, in defense of ugliness, in defense, and he just defends all these things. It's his first published collection of essays, and it's pretty great. Um, so that's good. Uh, a further question from this, um, um, from Mr. Dumbledore, acknowledging the appreciation or love for the repetitive and monotonous, what would you recommend for kids? Wow. Oh, which is a hard one. I've been thinking about that since I saw it show up, and I don't know that I have a good answer to this. Maybe which of Chesterton's works would I recommend? Or, oh, it, that is really interesting how he loved kids so much, and he you know made up so many stories with kids. But as far as I know, he hasn't published anything directly for kids, uh, which I think he would have been a phenomenal children's writer. I wish I wish he <laughs> out of all his things he published. Do you, yeah, I would say I don't know. Um, Cameron, do you know? You, would you have any there, recommendations? there are some collections. There are some things like um, there's a collection called the Colored Lands, which has a lot of his illustrations. Um, and there's a couple stories in there that are written one almost like a like an early graphic novel, um, a short, a graphic short, I guess. I don't know what the technical term for that is, but. Um, and those are mixed in though with all kinds of critical pieces and other things. So maybe that, um, suppose it depends on the age of the kid. Um, for anybody one under 12, would, I'm not sure. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, David. Oh, one thing I would add is um, his like closest friend, Hilaire Belloc wrote a fun book called Cautionary Tales, A Bad Child's Book. And it just goes through all these like terrible kids and like all the terrible fates they face for being bad. It's like, it's kind of gruesome, but it's really funny. And I think adults can enjoy it and kids can enjoy it. So it'd be something I'd recommend. It's called The Cautionary Tales and Bad Child's Book by Hilaire Belloc. Um, That's great. So. <laughs> um, uh, back to Lewis and Chesterton. And Tolkien, Tim asks, if we go back to Lewis and Tolkien, which of their works do we feel paved the way to enter into Chesterton? Assuming that we read Lewis and Tolkien earlier, what of Lewis and Tolkien prepped you for reading Chesterton? Oh, good. Um, I, I think for Lewis, um, his mere Christianity, um, be kind of a, somewhat of a similar an opener into orthodoxy where he's kind of introducing like a, a simple defense of christianity um tolkien's on fairy stories for sure um a lot of and then uh paired with um the kind of defense of fairy tales by chesterton um and i think leaf by nagel um by tolkien is just about the kind of defense of like the local beautiful creativity um and it, it i don't know it kind of captures to me a, a lot of the way chesterton writes like just celebrating the, the local and the and kind of brave the small bravery of, of man um I, I think would be a good pairing with chesterton yeah i think so i'm i'm trying to think of anything else that i would uh, you know, Chesterton is often kind of seen as the grandfather to the Inklings. He's kind of the generation before that's offering a robust defense of the Christian faith in a modern Britain that's rapidly, where belief in God is rapidly becoming laughable for a certain section of the academic community. Right. Uh, when, when Virginia Woolf hears of T.S. Eliot's conversion, she's shocked and she says in a letter, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I, it, to think of someone sitting by the fire and believing in God, I mean, he's just lost all credibility that he ever had, she says. Um, and so in that kind of world and environment, Chesterton offered a, a really robust defense of Christianity um, that was persuasive both argumentatively but also imaginatively um, that, that Lewis, and Lewis and Tolkien both read and drew from, I think. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, okay, 
any any final questions here? We've 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 hit ten o'clock, and you all have been faithfully enduring with us, uh, even past our past our time. Um, but I think we're probably happy to field any final questions if if you have any any concluding questions you'd like to ask David. I just want to say, everyone who came, thank you so much. Uh, it means a lot. Um, this was a, a wonderful journey. So thank you for, for being here. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you all for your participation and your questions. And thank you, David, for all your hard work here and your good work um, pursuing what Chesterton's up to and helping kind of ex explicate that for, for those to come. So you should you should be quite proud of, of your work. It's well done. Okay, thank you, Cameron. And thank you for being a, a wonderful really enjoyed the journey and your your feedback and um, just even the friendship. Um, appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you All both right. very, very much. Oh yes. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for organizing and running the back. Yeah. Sure. And I'll end it. One, two, three.